Being equipped is a lifelong process of being an apprentice under the hand of Christ. It is a fight for our joy and our usefulness. Uh, this is especially important in an age that I believe is a mind-numbing age of information overload. There's a book released in 1985, which is an outstanding book entitled Amusing Ourselves to Death by a professor of communications from New York University by the name of Neil Postman. 1985, a long time ago. And Neil Postman says that, <clears throat> that the, the American experience can be symbolized by the cities that we look to. For example, he said, the first great American city was the city of Boston, which welcomed the pilgrims and which established a beachhead in the New England states. And then a few years later, the American city of experience was the city of New York that had entrepreneurial movements and entrepreneurial excess and all types of people coming in to build a, a network of economic viability in our country. And then he said about, about 1850 and 1880, the American city of experience was Chicago, with, where it seemed like every railway began or ended in Chicago when they had all these markets and it was a, a look westward to the expansive growth of the United States. He said in his opinion to, in 1985, the city of experience for America was the city of Las Vegas. He said at that time with its 30-foot billboards and its 24 to 7 ongoing information and entertainment, it is an experience that defines America. And then he, he wrote a little paragraph that's very worthwhile. Let me explain it to you. He talked about Aldous Huxley, who wrote a book in 19 and 31 entitled Brave New World. And in that book, Aldous Huxley, as he looked to the future, said, there's going to become a future time of the year. He said, I think it's 2402 is when the book was set, 2402. When, when, when we are technologically advanced, where we mock family, where we mock marriage, where we mock sexual intimacy between a man and woman, it's just a casual thing, where we mock community, but, but, but we are so technologically advanced that we are entertained all the time and our minds are manipulated. Brave New World. Conversely, George Orwell wrote a book entitled 1984 that many of us read in high school that mocked and belittled the Soviet system they talked about the revision of history, the book burnings, so forth and so on, and the rule by a strong man or an oligarchy. And it says, his comment was, who really is more prescient in our age, Orwell, Soviets, or Huxley, runaway age information? Let me just read one paragraph. It says, what Orwell feared in 1984 were those who would ban books. What Huxley feared in Brave New World was that there would be no reason to ban a book for no one would want to read. Orwell, 1984, feared those who would deprive us of information. Huxley feared those who would give us so much that we would be reduced to passivity and egoism. Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Drowned in a sea of irrelevance. That, that struck me. Orwell feared we'd become a captive culture, while Huxley feared we'd become a trivial culture. Now, the question is, who was more right? I think, personally, that Brave New World was. I think we have to fight hard to think well and to go against our culture. For example, we just had this hurricane in Texas that brought hundreds of billions of dollars of damage. Many people were killed. 
Uh, the fourth largest city in America was basically reduced to a swamp. The Texans responded with brave dignity. There were countless stories of human interest and people helping neighbors and risking their welfare and their lives to help other people. It was, it was incredible. It was incredible to watch the, the heart-rending, heartbreaking situation. One day I picked up the, I went on the internet, and the lead story regarding the hurricane in Texas and what was going on that was carried by the, the New York Times and the Washington Post and Vanity Fair and Vogue. So the, the Times and the Post, excellent newspapers. Their, their lead story was that when President and Mrs. Trump went to the hurricane relief in Texas, that Mrs. Trump wore stilettos to the helicopter. That, that was it. And then she changed. She had tennis shoes by the time she got to Texas. But their whole deal was, was mocking the fact that the first lady was wearing stilettos. And I thought, okay, we live officially in the thraldom of silliness. Bizarre. There's so many things to talk about, and that's what's grabbed their attention. See, we live in this information overload with immediate access to everything, and you have to fight to think, well, hear me. Please hear me, especially young people. You have to fight to think well. Now, let me give you an example. I, I'm not all that old. I grew up, you know, in a time when you had set programs. You had a programs on Sunday night. You had programs on Monday night. You had soap operas during the day, you know, that type of thing. And you, you, but there were set programs. Today we can record, we can Netflix, we can do this 24-7. For example... When I was growing up, my brother's two years younger, uh, we lived for Sunday night because our favorite show came on at Sunday night at 9 o'clock. What, what, what show was that? Bonanza. Oh, it was so good. Ben, Haas, Little Joe, and... Adam, yeah. So, but it only came on 9 o'clock. Well, you couldn't record it. You couldn't watch it the next day on a different channel. You couldn't, whatever. You just, that was it. 9 o'clock. You missed it. Next week, it's gone. Monday night was the man from uncle. Like that. Unfortunately, just to tell you the, the deprivation of my youth, on Saturday night, we experienced adolescent purgatory, my brother and I did. On Saturday night at eight o'clock, my parents invariably watched, yeah, <laughs> the Lawrence Welk show. Now, if you're under 40, 45, 50, you don't under, it was horrible. It was accordions and trios and quartets and really pink and green and purple tuxes and a one and a two and a Lawrence and it always had polka dancing polka, always had polka dancing I mean that at first I thought that was Craig and Rafia at their wedding but that's not that's Lawrence Welk I mean so so we endured it why we didn't leave the room I don't know but we endured it my parents probably sat there enjoying every minute of our agony but that was eight o'clock on Saturday night that was it but now we can go to any place, any time. See, you've got, to, you've got to fight to think well. That's why in 1 Timothy, the passage we've been looking at, 1 Timothy 1, verse 18 says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies made about you, that by them, 
these prophecies, these, okay, that by them you may wage the good warfare, the sound, the beautiful, the ironic, the life-giving warfare. So, so how, how do you fight the spirit of the age? How do you fight the devil? How do you fight indwelling sin? Answer, by holding on to the prophecies, by thinking well. That's why our verse of the month is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. It says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it is profitable. See? Profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, which means stop doing that, and for instruction in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's it. And so we, we, we fight the good warfare, the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age, the devil, and ourselves with the prophecies. That was two weeks ago. So the paradigm I've given you is this. Number one, God is, and he is gloriously good. He's eternal. He's triune. Number two, God is a God of revelation. He's a speaking God. And number three, God desires for us to walk in obedience for his glory and our welfare or flourishing. Look at this verse. This is in Psalm 92. It says this, the righteous flourish. That's a wonderful word. Like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. Or the promise, the statement in Psalm 84. Listen to this. Psalm 84, verse 5 and following, blessed, happy. Blessed means happy. Blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose hearts are the highways to Zion as they go through the valley of Baca. They make it a place of springs. The early rains also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength until each appears before God in Zion. See, he says that as, as they go through the valley of Baca, we don't even know where that is, but it's a place of desolation. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. They go from strength to strength. There are people sitting here in these worship services today, and you can, you can point to them and say, when I talk to them, or when I have lunch with them, or when I'm in a community group with them, they always encourage me. As they go through life, because they're filled with the Holy Spirit, and they walk in the authority of Christ, they make the place they go a place of springs. Generally speaking, it's good to be in their presence. It's joyful. See, see and this is, so I, I'm gonna fight, I want to fight for my equipping because I, I, I want to challenge you, I want to challenge me to live above or close to our potential. You see, life as you get older, can slowly leak away from you. It's like having a big balloon that just... It can slowly leak away, but the Holy Spirit, through the power of Christ, as we sit under the authority of the Bible, fills us. That's what Paul says in 2 Timothy, fan into a white hot flame, Timothy, your gift. So, so I, 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 be equipped. Think well, think Christianly, because God wants you to flourish. God wants you to be like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf never withers. He won't, that's what he wants for you as you seek to honor Christ. And he says here in this passage, as you hold on to faith, I think it's the faith that's been delivered to the saints, the apostolic faith, 
and a good conscience. A good conscience is our thinking that determines right and wrong, that's sensitized and heightened by the Scripture under the power of the Holy Spirit. So a good conscience is a conscience that is grappling with the Bible and submits to God's revelation. So it says you, you, you fight the devil as you hold on to the faith that's once been delivered to the saints and a good conscience. But then he says this, and this is what I'm preaching on today. By rejecting this, reject means to cast aside, to really violently push aside. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. That's it. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. A, a shipwreck is of their faith is, is a professing believer. Okay? Next two weeks are going to be pretty tough issues. A professing believer who calls into question the reality of their salvation and their standing in Christ through doctrinal laxity, moral failure, or indifference, which brings sorrow, pain, and judgment upon their lives. Again, it's, it's, it's shipwreck is when a professing believer in Jesus, he's talking about believers here, through moral failure or doctrinal laxity or just indifference, is caught on the sandbar or on the rocks. And they experience pain and sorrow and judgment. It's devastating. In Hebrews 12, it says, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every sin and that which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before. So, so really in that passage, you're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, which refers to those who have gone before us in Hebrews 11. But as I look at that, I also think there's another great cloud of witnesses that surrounds us, and that's those who come behind us. We are leaving a legacy of faith and diligence or indifference for the generations to come. When I walk down the hall Monday to Friday and I see these children from Palmetto Christian Academy or I, I walk through Bible school, I walk through Sunday school and I see these kids, my, my heart's prayer is, God, do not let me blow it and shipwreck my faith. Do not let me cast a negative impression on the reality of who Jesus is for us. So I, I think of some of these pictures. I, I have some pictures here. Kids at, in our Sunday school. These are some kids at um, PCA, that's our headmaster, with the guy on the left is the uh, guy that won the prize to be headmaster in waiting. Funny story. This is a picture of some kids, I think at Bible school. And I think, I think God, God, do not let me blow. You see, real quick, two points about being shipwrecked. Number one, when you're shipwrecked, when you're shipwrecked, you don't know we don't know your spiritual standing in Christ. We just don't know. We, we don't know. And, and so, 
The same thing about being shipwrecked is, is minimally, church, minimally when you shipwreck your faith through doctrinal error or moral laxity or indifference, when you shipwreck your faith, minimally you use your usefulness in the kingdom of God. In 2 Timothy, there's a statement, verse chapter 2, it says, now, now in a large house, verse 19 says, let every, everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness. Then the application. He says, in a, in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also of wood and of clay, some for honorable use and some for, for dishonorable use. Therefore, if a man cleanses himself from these things, he'll be a vessel sanctified useful to the master, prepared for every good work. What Paul says, in a large house, you're going to have your goblets and your crystal that you bring out for your parties and your banqueting and your toasting, and then you have vessels of wood and clay to carry out the garbage in. They're just common things. They're no big deal. And he says, you know, how will you be used under the master's hand? Will you be someone who deals with sin and known for your repentance and you get rid of junk or do you let it fester in your life? Don't, don't, listen, I plead with you, do not shipwreck your faith. There are people here today, right now, and I'm not clairvoyant, who are close to shipwrecking their faith. Through doctrinal laxity, moral failures, or just indifference. And when you do, it, it brings sorrow. So, Tell you a story. A few years ago, a guy came out of the college ranks. His name was Aaron Rodgers. Aaron Rodgers plays for the Green Bay Packers. A few years ago, I was in, he's a, he's a great quarterback. He's articulate. He's thoughtful. Uh, I think he's a man of integrity in most, most areas. I, I really like Aaron Rodgers. A few years ago, I was in Thailand with my wife and father-in-law at a little village and we got up at 5 o'clock in the morning to watch the Packers play the Steelers in the Super Bowl. And it was a great game. Uh, the Packers won a thrilling ball game. Aaron Rodgers was the most valuable player. So when Aaron Rodgers came out of California, I just I read sports stories and said that he's, he came from a very conservative home, evangelical home, and Aaron Rodgers confessed faith in Christ. In fact, he gave a lot of money to evangelical causes and his local church. And I thought, well, good for him. You know, I'd like to see godly people prosper. And he sat on the bench for three years behind Brett Favre, and then he really took over. He's had a great career. But then, right after the Super Bowl, not long after the Super Bowl, I read where Aaron Rodgers was dating a, a beautiful young actress that you would know if I named her, uh, fairly well known. And this beautiful actress and Aaron Rodgers were living together. And I went, whoa, 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 whoa. I said, Aaron Rodgers professed his faith in Christ. What's going on? And then a few months later, I don't watch late night news. I just saw an article about she was on a late night talk show and she was laughing about the uh, sexual intimacy practice between she and Aaron Rodgers and how when they were intimate when they were not. And she was making jokes about it and laughing. And, and uh, I thought, oh, man. I had, I had two thoughts. I said, why in the world are you dating her if you're a believer? Somebody that talks about sexual morality with no repentance and no regret, but brags about it. What are you doing dating her? And then this past week, ESPN Magazine came out with a 20-page article on, entitled, The Search for Aaron Rodgers. 
And as the article unfolded, I went, hmm, I get it, I get it. He said he went through a personal catharsis around 2008. That's when he started living with this girl. Let me tell you something. Doctrinal failure follows in the wake of moral laxity. Take that to the bank. Doctrinal aberration or failure is the handmaiden of moral failure. I can tell you how many men have looked at me, me, in my study as a pastor and said, I'm leaving my wife, but it's okay because as I take up with this 20-year-old aerobics instructor, 25-year-old, God wants me to be happy, and I want to throw up. And the truth is, God does want us to be happy. In fact, the word blessed means happy, brothers and sisters. Just Google blessed. He wants us to be happy in the path he's chosen for us. So anyway, he's going through this personal catharsis, and he says he meets a pastor named Rob Bell. Rob Bell is a well-known pastor who wrote a book that doubted many significant, or a couple of significant Christian issues. And he just released a book entitled, What is the Bible All About? And in that book he says, uh, Jesus' death on the cross was an accident. It wasn't necessary. It was a murder, which tells me he shipwrecked his faith. A pastor. I Googled him. He, he uh, was on Super Soul Sunday, interviewed by Oprah Winfrey, who was just such, such a kind woman. But it, there was a, just a seven minute interview, and she, she, she gave him some questions that I call softball questions. You know, my, my kids never play t ball, but some of your kids have played t ball. And t ball is, is, is this sport. That was bad. Just realized I missed a loop right here. Thanks for not telling me, okay? So T-ball is, is this sport for young kids and they get a, a T, a little big, and they put a ball on it that big and they get them a, a huge bat and you swing and you hit it. You're gonna hit it. There's all, you're, you're all winners, you run to any base you want to and you don't keep score and everybody wins the World Series and goes home happy. So Oprah asked him some questions, and let me tell you something, it's T-ball time. Man, I'm going to give you a couple questions. She says to him, Rob Bell, who shipwrecked, she says, who is God? Well, ask me. God is Trinitarian and eternal, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There was never a time when God was not. And in the fullness of time, based upon the eternal counsel of redemption, the living God became a man. His name was Jesus. He fulfilled the Old Testament sacrificial system and died on the cross for our sin and rose victorious over death. And he poured out the Holy Spirit on his church and he rules and he's going to call history to a close. That's God. That's pretty simple. That's what Rob Bell said. God is a song you hear in another room. When I hear that song, I gotta open the windows and hear more about it and rearrange the furniture. That's it. I want to weep. What do you know for sure? Answer that you can say yes to the moment and experience the joy that cannot be put into words. 
What does that mean? There's nothing to hold to. Shipwreck. I don't want to be harsh, but think. Oprah says, fill in this blank. I believe, his answer, that we are going to be fine in the end. I don't, I don't, I don't know where to go with that. And so this guy becomes a spiritual advisor to Aaron Rodgers, and they become friends, and they still are friends. And this is what the article says. I don't want to belabor this. It says in the article, I says, I ask, him, I ask him if he still considers himself to be a Christian. Aaron Rodgers says he no longer identifies with any affiliation regarding religion. He said this, I think organized religion can have a mind-debilitating effect because there is an exclusivity that can shut you out from being open to the world to people and to energy and to love and acceptance, close quote. I have no idea what that means. I don't be harsh. But you see, when someone is shipwrecked, you don't know if they're going to be there for a while or forever. So, three points. Number one, when you're shipwrecked, you don't know, once again, if it's for a season or if it's permanent. Listen, when somebody is shipwrecked and they're on the sandbank, they're on the rocks because of doctrinal aberration or doctrinal departure or moral failure or indifference, there are two errors you should avoid. Two errors to avoid. Error number one is to say, I know that he's not a Christian, because you don't know his heart. All of us have struggled and do struggle with sin. You don't know his heart. People who love Jesus and who are regenerate have failures. But the other extreme is to say, well, it's no big deal. I know he is a Christian. You know why? You don't know his heart. The Bible says repeatedly that by their fruit you shall know them. The Bible says repeatedly, faith without works is dead. So, so when somebody a child, a parent, a spouse, a friend is shipwrecked through moral failure or, or doctrinal departure or indifference. We are to pray for them and to plead with them and to love them and to embrace them. We go to Philippians 2, Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Go to 2 Peter 1 that says, make your calling and your election sure. What you don't do is just to go, oh, well, these things happen. No, this is big stuff. Eternity looms. Number two, again, faith that works is dead. I, I tell people this frequently. I, I think I said it almost every new member's class. But in Matthew chapter 7, uh, I said the scariest passage in the Bible is found in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 to 23, it says this, Now, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many, M-A-N-Y, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did, did we not? prophesy in your name, Jesus, or, or preach. See, did we not cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? 
Then I will tell them very plainly, depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. You unrepentant sinners. Number three, saving faith equals trust in Christ and repentance. The Baptist Faith Message, our doctrinal statement, Article 4 says this, regeneration or the born-again experience is a change of heart wrought by the Holy Spirit through conviction of sin to which the sinner responds in repentance and faith. Repentance and faith are inseparable experiences of grace. Repentance. This is the 500th year of the Reformation. 517, October, Martin Luther nailed 95 theses on the Wittenberg church door and started a movement called the Reformation. It had no idea it's going to happen. But the first thesis that talked about correcting issues in the church is this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be one of repentance. I'm never done with repentance because I'm never done with sin. 29 years later, at the age of 62, February of uh, 1546, Luther traveled to a city, uh, wasn't sick when he left his house. He became sick on the way and he died apart from his beloved wife, Katie. But as on his deathbed and he couldn't speak, he asked for a piece of paper and he wrote on the piece of paper this statement. And I love this. His last words, we are beggars. This is true. February 19 or 1546. We are beggars. This is true. So, so understand this. It's all about grace. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul is writing to a church that's in a city that's a wild city. Corinth was wild. All types of immoralities, all types of behaviors, all types of idols to worship. This is what he says to the church, this small church that's just really struggling with some huge, huge issues. He says this in verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Then he says this. This is so sweet. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. He says, you know, just, just look around the church. He says, you have people here, there were swindlers and liars and involved in all types of sexual immorality and they're, they're, just, they're just out there. But you know what? God has saved you. You've been washed, you've been justified, you've been sanctified by the Spirit of the living God and by the blood of Jesus. There's not a person in this room that doesn't struggle with sin. It's true. So, so when you come to faith in Christ, when you come to, to, the, to, to, to be with God's people, you come to the Arthurian round table. 
It's a round table because the only one who deserves to sit at the head of the table is named Jesus. Because the rest of us are just there. It's a round table. But as you come, as you come, you leave your stuff at the door. That's called repentance. You leave your sin at the door. You leave that which violates Scripture at the door. You just you leave your junk out there. It's, it's, it's the round table. For example, everyone here has a different uh, mixture of things they struggle with. It's sometimes age-related, it's sometimes health-related, but we struggle with issues. For example, I was reading last night uh, about, about, about alcoholism in America. I, I, I've never struggled with over-drinking. It's just, not, it's just not in my background. I have dear friends in this church who I've sat with and prayed with who have struggled with alcoholism. They do. And they'll tell me, I think I've got it beaten, and then it'll come up and it'll bite me again. So I was reading this. It says, Americans are drinking more alcohol in recent years than they did 15 years ago, with 12.6% of the population, or 30 million people, binge drinking at least once a week. A study of 40,000 Americans carried out by Johns Hopkins. The study found that 12.7% of the population in America is alcoholic. Heavy drinking rose most sharply in the last 15 years among women, blacks, and senior citizens. Dr. David Jennigan from the John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health said, make no mistake about it, alcohol, not opioids, is our number one drug problem. I thought about dear brothers and sisters who struggle with that issue. I thought about other people who struggle with, with, with other things, including me. The thing about when you come to the table of the Lord, you leave your stuff at the door. So I'm going to talk to you about something that's happened a couple of weeks ago in regards to this. Two weeks ago, there was a statement released called the Nashville Statement on Human Sexuality signed by a group of people in Nashville. Some of them are my, my friends. And uh, the Nashville Statement basically is a biblical statement on human sexuality uh, in light of the, the rapid movement of our culture into different areas. I read the statement several times. We read it out loud as a staff and discussed it. There's an, an editorial in the Washington Post written by a man named Al Mohler, who is a friend of mine. And Al talked about why he signed the Nashville Statement let me just read a couple of paragraphs. He says, we fully understand that our culture is increasingly influenced by the promise that human flourishing can come by what is styled as sexual liberation and the overthrowing of historic Christianity's witness to God's purpose in making us as sexual beings, as male and female. This statement was carefully written. By the way, it was called the Nashville Statement because they met in Nashville. They named these statements after places where they meet. They've had the Manhattan Declaration or... Uh, well, the Council of Nicaea, 325, none of those guys were there, but they met in Nicaea. So anyway, anyway, um, we fully understand that our culture, I'll say right that, okay. The, the statement was carefully written, love of neighbor requires us to speak clearly and very specifically to the truths affirmed and the errors denied in this document. I think, it's true. I think love, 
is, is speaking the truth and brokenness and love. Then he, he answered this way. The main goal of the Nashville Statement is to point all persons, regardless of the form of our struggles over sexuality or self-identity, to salvation and wholeness in Christ. With all our hearts, we believe that the sexual revolution cannot deliver, us, deliver on its promises, but that Jesus Christ always delivers on His promises. The very fact that the statement made headlines and was greeted with shock and surprise in some quarters underlines why it, is, it was needed. We believe that human dignity and human flourishing and true human freedom are at stake. We know that two rival visions of what it means to be human are now fully apparent. We stand by the vision affirmed by the historic Christian faith for 2,000 years. Now, listen, there are people here today who have same-sex attractions, and we love them. And they're not second class. There are people here today who, who really sometimes think, I've got a male body, but should I be female or vice versa? And we love them. We pray for them. And we say there's full mercy and grace found in Christ. We're not here to cast stones. I do believe this. These, when I first was converted, these are two of the three guys I read all the time. One, is named, one guy is named C.S. Lewis. He's the guy on the left. He died in 1963, on the same day that President Kennedy was assassinated, 1963. The other guy is Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer was a Presbyterian missionary, philosopher, theologian. Uh, he died in 1984. So 63 and 84, both of them were very prescient. They saw way down the corridors of time. They, in fact, Schaefer really is amazing. You read his stuff and you're thinking he wrote it last week and he wrote it in 1977 or whatever. I, I, I really believe with all my heart that if you had read this document to either one of those men, they'd go, what's your point? What's your point? I think things have changed so fast, nobody saw this coming. And so it's important that we, I think as God's people, with grace and dignity and brokenness, state for our neighbors and our friends and our children and our children's children what these things mean. So, so the, the furor with the national statement involved Article 10. There are only 14 articles. Well, let me read Article 9, then I'll read Article 10. I'm going to do this real quickly. So listen. We affirm that sin distorts sexual desires by directing them away from the marriage covenant between one man and one woman and towards sexual immorality, a distortion that includes both heterosexual and homosexual immorality. So they're saying any sex outside of marriage is, is against the law of God. We deny that an enduring pattern of desire for sexual immorality ever justifies sexual immoral behavior. So just because you have an itch doesn't make it right. But Article 10 is what really cause people to despair, some people. We affirm that it is sinful to approve of homosexual immorality or transgenderism, and that such approval constitutes an essential departure from Christian faithfulness and witness. We deny that the approval of homosexual immorality or transgenderism is a matter of moral indifference about which otherwise faithful Christians should agree to disagree. They said, this isn't, this isn't, well, you say potato, I say potato. No, no, no. This goes to the heart of what it means to be a man or a woman and to walk under the lordship of Jesus Christ. 
This, this, this is, so we have to stand and we have to speak. So, in the aftermath of, of this, there were a lot of editorials written. One of the signatories of this document is the woman who spoke at this church last spring, Rosaria Butterfield. She's delightful. I mean, she she's, was a former professor at Syracuse in English and women's studies, um, articulate, gracious, caring, a good writer. I'm going to read you a little bit from her editorial. A good writer. Uh, a woman who was involved in the homosexual lifestyle for a long time. Let me just read what she says. I'm going to, three or four paragraphs. The, the issue is not primarily homosexuality. It's the scripture. The issue is not primarily gay marriage. It's whether the word of God is living and active and sharp and a double-edged sword and piercing to the division of the soul and spirit. Hebrews 5 verse 12. The issue is whether we all bear the sin of Adam inheriting an unchosen moral deformity. That's it. We're all dysfunctional. We really are. An energy of opposition to God, a rebellion that bequeaths to us a sin nature that we cannot erase on our own terms and by our own hands. The issue is whether Jesus rose from the grave and is alive today and whether his blood and love and resurrection makes any whit of difference in how you fight the original sin that distorts you. The actual sin that distracts you and the indwelling sin that manipulates you. The issue is whether you trust the Bible to tell you who you are and who God is and which way is up. 20 years ago, she writes, I lived as a lesbian. I delighted in my lover, our home, our golden retrievers, and our careers. When Christ claimed me for his own, I did not stop feeling like a lesbian. I did not fall out of love with women. I was not converted out of homosexuality. I was converted out of unbelief. This is good theology. She said, you know, the issue is trusting the goodness of God, trusting the reality of Christ. She goes on and says this. Man, this, is, I'm, this, this, this will be on the web tomorrow. You need to read this. Our blog post, whatever you call it. The, the thing you Google and go to, okay? She says, conversion to Christ did not initially change my sexual attraction for women. What conversion did change immediately was my heart and mind. My mind was on fire for the Bible. And I could not read enough of it or enough about it. The gospel gave me a light that was ruinous. Did you hear that? It ruined me for the life I had loved. That's powerful. The gospel of Jesus ruined my natural compulsions and the life I had loved. That's a statement of growth in Christ. So, so I, I look at that and say, is, do, have I experienced that the gospel is ruinous? Ruinous. A um, couple of examples. I'll give you, I mean, three examples. I'll give you 30. Just basic stuff. For example, husbands. The Bible says in Ephesians 5, that we are to love our wives like Jesus loves the church. 
And he gave himself up for her with his blood, his life. Now, if you're in a, if you're a man-to-man this week and you ask the men around the tables and they can respond in total anonymity behind a blackened screen with voices made different than you could normally hear, does your wife always deserve to be loved with a Christ-like self-sacrificial love? Every man there will say, what? No. No. And so, so in, in a marriage, you come to a fork in the road. You, the, the fork in the road is, this is what Jesus says right here. Boom. Fork one. I, I, but, but you know what? My wife is hard to live with. She, she's a, she can be, I'm sorry, an ag, not my wife. I'm speaking. I'm, I'm not. I'm talking about in general. Please, I'm talking about in general. Okay. You might say, my wife can be. She can nag. She can do this. She can do that. She's she's not always pleasant. So forth and so on. So, so your decision is, am I going to emotionally withdraw from my wife? and develop little hobbies or little weekend trips around college football or hunting or golf that that keeps me away from her and keeps me out of her orbit of influence. And we we have some type of ironic quasi-ceasefire between hostile powers and we just exist together in separate bedrooms and separate lives. I won't won't cheat at her because the Bible says you cannot commit adultery and I'm a Christ follower supposedly. Either you do that or, or you, you stand at the crossroads and you say, you know what? I'm married to someone who isn't perfect, like me. So today, I'm going to pray for my wife and I'm going to serve her and I'm going to seek to love her and I'm going to praise her and I'm going to be careful to not put her down and I'm going to ask for the liberating power of the Holy Spirit to flow into my life because I'm trying to honor Jesus. Wives. The Bible says in Ephesians 5, verse 33, respect your husbands. Here's your fork. You can say, respect? My husband sometimes makes bad decisions. He sits in the den in his underwear and watches ESPN all day Saturday. How gross is that? My my husband can be a dullard. He goes to the same restaurant, he orders the same food, and wears the same clothes unless I burn them every other year. See, some of these old women are laughing because it's true. So, Sometimes, quite honestly, it's hard to respect him. So, are you going to withdraw and manipulate and browbeat? Or are you going to come to the crossroads and say, Almighty God, you said respect my husband. Therefore, I'm I'm going to pray for him. And I'm going to build him up when I see things that I can build him up. And I will never say anything detrimental about his character to his kids or his grandkids. And I'm going to believe in him and I'm going to trust Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit to change him as he changes me. And as I do that, I'm going to ask for the liberating power of Jesus to flow into my life. 
That, see, sin ruins you. And the gospel ruins you. One other example. Everybody here has been done dirty to. You've had people that have manipulated you and spoke harshly about you and have put you down and maybe have started an office gossip that caused you to be passed over for a promotion. And so you come to the crossroads and you say, there is this guy who is, who is just bad news and he spreads rumors and he's not, it's just bad. So, so you, you, you have the option of, of starting a whispering campaign against him and going to New Orleans and getting a voodoo doll and putting pins in it. See? Or, 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 or saying these things, or you stand at the crossroads where Jesus says this, is just, this blows my mind, this blows my mind. Love your enemies. I don't get it. Jesus, you're ruining me. So I'm going to pray for him. I'm going to trust God to change, and I'm going to ask God to grant him mercy. When Jesus says pray for enemies, he didn't mean pray that coals of fire or a, or, a, or a plane would fall on their head. It's not imprecatory prayers. It's prayers for their welfare. Listen, Jesus ruins us, our natural compulsions. But, but if, I, if I'm to avoid shipwreck, I will leave my junk at the door and come to the table of the Lord. And it's a round table. It's a round table. Time is way gone. Uh, we started this program today called uh, Equip You, Equip Them. You've responded very graciously. Be involved in Bible study. Uh, you've responded graciously in stepping forward to serve and care, whether it's in parking ministries or greeting ministries. We still need some workers in children's ministries. So if God so leads you, we really need some workers. So go online and we could use that. Be very, very kind. Thank you for your attention. Let's pray real quickly. Lord, thank you for the goodness of the cross. Thank you that sin is destructive and horrible, and we see it. And really coming to Jesus ruins our natural compulsions. And, but your, your, your uh, correction is always for our good. Think of the statement by Lewis that says, the hardness of God is kinder than the softness of man. His voice of command is our liberation. So we believe, Lord, that to walk in your way is a place of liberation. I pray for people here today who, who are on the precipice of shipwreck. Some are already there. I pray that by the power of the Spirit, they would leave sin and get off the sandbar and experience the freedom and the joy and the blessedness that comes in knowing Christ. I pray for those who are entering into a season of temptation and, and issues. I, I pray that you give them the grace to walk through it and to run away from that which destroys and brings harm and ruins our legacy. So God, have mercy upon us, I pray. Help us to think well in a culture that's given to trivialities. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you very much.